<laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm Viggy Parhampton, and you are listening to Horror Humor Hunger. Hello, everybody. Today, we're welcoming back Dr. Camille Holliner, who is a frequent guest on the show, and she is also a clinical psychologist. Anything else you'd like to add, Camille? No, I think that's a great introduction. I am happy to be back, and I really love this story, so I'm excited to talk about it. All right, well, let's just dive right in then. So the main character, his name is Charlie Douglas. He is known as the Laugh Master. And what do you think kind of motivates him before we know how he's getting his laughs? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think at the beginning, it sounds like he's really trying to have this sense of purpose, right? Um, feeling needed and, and wanting that sense of connection and belonging as well. And I know you don't really talk about um, the death of his daughter until later on in the story, right? Um, but maybe also trying to compensate for the loss of his daughter and remembering her laugh and trying to kind of bring that back to life in a way through laughter yeah I, I would agree with you and I'd also add and I mean I know I wrote this but it was several years ago and I feel like I'm still pulling things from it even though I wrote it uh, mm -hmm. but I got a lot of like ambition and greed coming in there too because mm -hmm. you know he's the inventor of this very mysterious machine he's the only one who knows how it works and he's kind of monopolized the entire laugh market he created and monopolized the market so I think it it maybe it started out as something sweet and then very quickly turned into something not sweet. Yeah, it seems like it turned it evolved into something very self-serving of just, you know, even being known as the master, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and try it sounds like he really takes a lot of pride in that title and being the best in the business and went on, you kind of hear that repetitively throughout the story. Totally. And I mean, how does your opinion of him change once you know the very sordid and scary way he has for getting his laughs? I would say it changes a lot um, after knowing how he does indeed gather his laughs. Um, you know, I, I would say I had a certain level of respect for him at the beginning, right? Of like, okay, wow, he's really good at his craft and whatnot. It sounds like he works hard and takes pride in it. And then it's almost like the respect turned into a little bit of uh, repulsion, I would say, of just knowing the evil things that he does. Um, and I guess just viewing him as this like person who does these really bad evil things. I know. And I mean, like I said, it's been several years since I wrote it. So I'm reading it and I know what's going to happen. But in the, in the beginning, I feel bad for him because, you know, he's very much alone. We see his very yeah. sad studio. There's nothing in the fridge. There's nobody taking care of him. And it's it's just him. And then once we realize kind of how he's getting these laughs and how horrifying that really is, we can see him try to rationalize what we know is bad. He's thinking, you know, well, it, it's okay I'm doing this because I'm bringing laughter to everybody. And isn't that what everybody wants? But, I mean, there really isn't a way to rationalize away what he does. Well, let's just say he's trying to rationalize something that is completely irrational. Yes. Right. But obviously that I think that makes him feel better and eases a sense of guilt that we see he does obviously have later on into the story. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about laughter in general. Uh, so there's all different kinds of laughter. We laugh when we're happy, sometimes when we're sad, sometimes when we're scared. There's maniacal laughter. That's always funny. <laughs> so what kind of purpose does laughter serve in general, do you think? And that can be from a personal experience or from your 
psychological experience? I think there's many different um, purposes, right? It's really a social connector. If you think about it, it's like this universal language we all can speak no matter where you're from, your culture, what language you speak, anything like that. Everyone laughs or you would hope that someone <laughs> laughed at some point in their life, right? Um, but it, it just brings upon genuine connection. And I think something interesting about laughter too is for the most part, you can tell when someone is faking it, it's not genuine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that almost is like a deterrent. If you hear someone kind of use this fake laugh, it's it's almost just like, oh, I don't like, it's off-putting in a way versus someone who genuinely is laughing, you just instantly feel more connected um, and more warmth to them. So it's definitely laughter serves a social function. Um, but it's also, it's really good for a physical health as well. Like it lowers your blood pressure, um, helps with stress, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and even something interesting, I mean, kind of unrelated, but during pregnancy too, and your, your baby can feel when you're laughing and it, yeah, they like actually really enjoyed it. And it makes them happy in the womb. They've, they've shown through ultrasound, like how the baby reacts to laughter. So you can see like that physical response and genuine happiness that that's awesome you brought in a lot of really really good points that I didn't even thought of I love the idea of laughter as kind of a social connector that everybody can understand Mm -hmm. and that kind of makes more sense about why we would even want kind of that canned sitcom laughter in a tv show I mean I think it serves a couple purposes it like you said it makes people happy and I mean in some cases there's that layer of this feels really forced because you know that's People aren't necessarily laughing at that. It's been pre-recorded, but yes. at some point that was real laughter, most likely. So, I mean, yeah. what do you think about kind of the canned sitcom laughter? Sure. I mean, that's definitely an attempt to, um, you know, get more audience reinforcement and retention rates. Um, and I think if you feel like other people are laughing at something, it almost tricks you to be like, oh, okay, this is supposed to be funny. Um, and that laughter might even become infectious, right? Like almost like yawning. You see someone else yawn and you're more likely to yawn. It's kind of like that with laughter as well. Um, so I think just by hearing other people laugh, again, you're more likely to laugh, which is going to give you like those positive, um, that positive perspective and memory of that show. And then you're probably more likely to watch it. Uh, something else too is we're more likely to laugh in groups, like when you're with other people. So even if you're watching a show alone, but then you hear this like group of people laughing, you probably feel like you're part of that group in a way, which is going to make you more likely to laugh. So definitely it's like pulling in for that connection of of people wanting to watch the show and remembering it in a positive way. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also, I know there are a lot of people who probably just like to have the TV on in the background just to, and this sounds sad, but it's not necessarily sad, just to feel like you're not alone. And Mm -hmm. I feel like when you have, you can hear people laughing too. It's like, okay, I'm in a warm, comfortable, cozy environment. But at the same time, there are like very few shows, I think, have those laughs anymore. And I'm not really sure. I mean, I think the Big Bang Theory had canned laughter, but I'm. why do you think so few shows have that now? I mean, it's kind of seen as cheesy, but it does serve a purpose. Well, and, and that's interesting. And, and, you know, I wonder if that's just because we have like more advanced technology now and ways to keep an audience entertained um, versus maybe before it was kind of like, all right, people might get bored or it's not as stimulating in certain ways that they thought they needed that laughter to pull people in. But now we have all the special effects and, you know, like the graphics are so good that maybe they just deem it unnecessary at this point of like, we're going to keep an audience enthralled regardless of whether or not there's this canned laughter. 
or maybe shows are getting smarter jokes are getting funnier i mean maybe that was a way to say okay we know this isn't a really funny joke but if we throw a laugh track in people will think it's funnier than it is and maybe now the writing is better i don't know i i would i feel like most people would think that tv shows in general the popular ones have gotten better and maybe we no longer feel that we need that laugh track because we're smart enough to figure out is that funny or not yeah well that's a good point too if we think of you know the canned laughter is viewed as cheesy right kind of shows sometimes when you look back you're like wow like these are really cheesy and not so authentic and i think shows have gone in more authentic just depicting real life events so they don't feel like they need that forced laughter it's like you're gonna laugh anyways because i think we're more able to like relate to what's going on in the shows today anyways i mean there's such a wide variety that's very true and i think also when you do have the laugh track it there's a little bit of nostalgia there so now when it's there it's extremely deliberate to make you feel like oh this is the good old days you know back when life was simple and we could all just have people tell us when to laugh and now i feel like there's so many shows out there. There's so many different streaming platforms. It's just, that's not even something we need anymore because not everybody wants to laugh. They want to watch something scary. They want to watch a lot of drama. They want to watch a reality show and it just seems unnecessary now. Yeah. Well, and something too, I just thought of, um, you know, I feel like when television first came out, it was something that families, since it was more unusual and, and a novelty, right? Families would sit there and watch it together and it wasn't just so convenient like it is now. And so it was kind of more um, of just this like heartwarming experience, right? Whereas now, yeah, there's so many different genres, so many different types of shows. People watch them whenever they want that it's kind of not that same like perfect homey feeling anymore. That's a really good point. Yeah, because people used to like sit around the TV together and it'd be a family activity. And now I feel like most people are watching on their laptop by themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not this like way of connection or form of connection like it used to be. Yeah, which is, I don't know if that means if that's a good thing. Now we have a lot more choices or are we and we can do things on our own or if that's a bad thing. Because like so much of technology, it's kind of separating us from other people and encouraging us to isolate ourselves. Yeah. Maybe we need to bring back in the laughter tracks and start connecting people again. Maybe we do. I mean, well, I also kind of want to seg into talking about the psychology of sort of mediating people's reactions to things. Like if somebody tells you to laugh or if somebody tells you to be afraid or to be sad or you hear or see other people having a certain type of reaction, does that actually change how you feel? Um, I think it really can have a big impact, especially if it's something that's repetitive and told over and over again, um, definitely for people that are younger as well, right? I mean, we see that with our kids, like you model certain behaviors, they do this, do, do, don't do that. They're going to be receptive to it to some degree, right? Um, I think if you really, you hear something enough, you do start to believe it. It's all about modeling. That's so true. And I think there's also an element of groupthink Because if you think about, that's like the whole reason we have you know, the best book lists or movie critics or Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, we look and we see, okay, what did most people think about this? And in some cases, you're like, if you've, especially if you've already seen or read whatever it is before and you can form your own opinion. But I feel like, especially if I'm, you know, looking at Goodreads or looking at Rotten Tomatoes before I read or watch something and I see it got a really low rating, that does affect A, whether I want to see or watch it or read it. Or if, I do how I think it actually shakes out because if I'm going in thinking, oh my gosh, it's got a 99% Rotten Tomatoes, it's going to make me think as I watch it, is it that good instead of just enjoying it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're already primed, right? Thinking, oh, okay, it's got a great rating. It's going to be good. And our brain loves 
to like loves things that match up. So basically if you're going in thinking this is going to be good, you are subconsciously already looking for like the positives in the movie and for reasons why you would like it because that matches this rating, right? Like otherwise it's called cognitive dissonance when something doesn't align. Our brain doesn't like that, right? So it almost feels worse of, hey, you saw this Rotten Tomatoes rating of 90%. You think it's going to be good. You hated it. Like that just feels really icky in a way. Um, so again, we can be primed to like look out for kind of whatever intention we went in. Um, but even with your thoughts too, like if you wake up in the morning and you think, okay, at the end of the day, I'm going to think about the best part of my day or today, um, you know, something good is going to happen. Your brain is literally going to seek that out throughout the day subconsciously. So That's it's a really good message. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I think it's a good thing for anyone to practice truly if you can really prime your brain subconsciously to seek out kind of the, the positives. That's a very good message. But I also want to go back to something else you said, because I think it's interesting what you said about cognitive dissonance versus, you know, we want our, our brains want things to match up. Because mm -hmm. in my mind, and maybe it's just because I am looking for faults, but I think, okay, if I see a movie got 90% around tomatoes or a book got like a 4.5 stars on Goodreads, and I read it, I'm looking for, do I really think it's that good? And I'm not afraid to be like, you know what, I, I didn't like this. Like, it does yeah. not bother my brain if they don't match up. Not in, well, in some ways it does, because I'm like, how did so many people think this was good? Like, is there something yeah, wrong with I me that I didn't think that? You know, so I guess that it does bother me, but I also do kind of seek it out. Is that normal? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, you're someone who likes to think in a more individual way. Right. And everyone just has a different personality and temperament. There's some people who really hate going against the grain. Right. And then like, they might take that to heart of like, oh my gosh, like what is wrong with me? Why I didn't like this. Right. Versus I think you almost kind of take it in pride of like, okay, maybe I'm viewing this differently. Just depends on your personality. Yeah, I guess that's right. Also my husband, Ryan, he is the kind of guy who would go in and be like, it's kind of 4.5. I th thought I thought it was a three. And he's mm -hmm. very happy to be like, oh, that was bad. But he's mm -hmm. also the kind of person who won't watch any movie I suggest until he looks it up on Rotten Tomatoes and it got at least like an 80%. Yeah. So make of that what you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit more about Charlie and we can talk about grief because we touched on this a little bit in the beginning. So he's clearly tormented by the death of his daughter but I mean, that does not stop him from taking other people's lives. So what do you make of that as a psychologist? Yeah, so that's interesting. And I think grief can really lead us to think in irrational ways and even act irrationally. Um, and it sounds like, obviously, I do not know what his life was like before the passing of his daughter, right? Um, but sounds like the grief has definitely affected him in a very negative way, which unfortunately is very common, again, to have irrational thoughts or beliefs. Um, after someone has passed, especially in, this sounds like it was a traumatic way um, and he felt really helpless, right? Um, and so trauma a lot of times too, when it's unresolved, which it sounds like in this situation, because obviously he could not heal his daughter and bring her back, um, we get stuck with it and it keeps replaying over and over again. So I think it's almost like this trauma replaying out for him that he is not able to move past and heal from. Mm -hmm. So, and again, we can see this in these actions that are very negative. Yes, that's putting it mildly. Quite negative. <laughs> Quite negative. Yes, put it kindly. So what is your professional opinion of him? Um, I mean, I think he could die. Well, I know in the end, right, there's kind of what's done is done. But um, beforehand, definitely would have benefited from some trauma and grief therapy. 
right? Whether that be cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR. Um, I also would be curious to see what his support system looks like. I know we mentioned he lives alone, right? It sounds like it's a very lonely life, um, but it sounds like he definitely needs support, whether that be through like a grief support group, or I don't know if he has other family or what the situation is, um, but it sounds like he's lacking a lot of resources. And maybe that was him being unwilling to accept them. I'm not sure, but definitely could use some services. Um, probably some antidepressants as well, as we know, again, the way that his life ended. And it sounds like he has a lot of anxiety. I would say so. Yes. So I think a multitude of different treatment options would have been very beneficial for him. But I mean, definitely struggling from depression and anxiety, which is obviously very sad to see and in grief as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I kind of want to go back to something we touched on in the beginning about how laughter can signify lots of different things. And what do you think about kind of the juxtaposition of laughs are meant to make people happy and meant to make people sort of enjoy their shows and have a good time and feel like they're part of something. But the way he's getting them is so horrible and involves a lot of death. I mean, what what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um I think it's him trying to like compensate for what he's doing in his mind of he's doing something horrific, right? But turning it into something good, I think he's trying to justify that, which I think, again, is that irrationality coming out um, because of his grief where he's not thinking clearly. I mean, I know he does have guilt at the end, um, but I wonder if it's also some anger that he has about the death of his daughter and that's how he is acting out with his anger Mm -hmm. I mean would you say had he not met his untimely end would you say that there was some sort of redemption that would be possible for him I I don't I'm not sure what that would look like I honestly think maybe the redemption is him almost I don't say don't donating or what word to use but his laughter being able to be used for something hopefully beneficial Mm -hmm. Maybe that's almost a way that we get a little redemption in, but it's hard to say before that because obviously he has taken a lot of lives and I don't know what the situation is with the families or any of that. And it sounds like they were pretty gruesome as well. I I would say so. And I mean, in that vein, did you find the story creepy? Um, I I don't know. I say creepy. I actually, I think what felt the creepiest was, um, I can't remember the last executive's name, Hugh, maybe his demeanor I felt was creepy. So I think towards the end gave me that sense, but just kind of this demanding, like the way he described the laugh he wanted, um, seemed very narcissistic as well. Um, he kind of gave me a creepy feeling. Yeah, I'm just very detached and thinking, ah, well, I don't really care what happens to this guy. I just need what I need when I need it. Yes, yes, exactly. Would it surprise you to know, and we talked about this in a previous episode, that the laugh box is 100% real and Charlie Douglas is a real person who invented it. And like I said in the previous episode, so the laugh box itself was a real machine that kind of looked like it had little typewriter keys and he would just kind of create and mix and match all these different laughs and the only people who knew how it worked were him and I think his son and it was one of like the best kept secrets in the business and I read an article about that and that's why I decided to write the story because I'm thinking oh well if it's such a secret what is what is being kept secret why is it so secretive yeah 
Oh, that is so interesting. I mean, I love the interpretation of, of you know, where you went with it. I think it was really creative and such an interesting story. Um, but you, you also, again, you tied it into something that like we can all connect to. And I think that we all remember like these laugh tracks and just laughter in general, but I love this story. That's thank so you. Cool. I mean, that's something real. Thank you. I mean, that's my job as a horror writer. Take something that makes people happy and make it horrible. Yeah. Right? That's my, but in that's a good my job. way. But in an entertaining <laughs> way. Exactly. So I'll ask you any other thoughts about this story or the psychology of Charlie Douglas or any other character. Yeah. Well, just, I guess, to mention that like all emotions have a purpose evolutionary wise. And so for grief, um, grief, it really is something that again can be a social connector, even though you wouldn't think of it that way, similar to laughter, but really grief helps you pull for resources and brings together community which kind of, again, is what laughter does as well. But you don't really see the two together, but here in the story, they are connected. So it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, from an adaptive uh, perspective, they are pretty similar. That's really interesting. And I mean, do you think that this story is decent evidence of what happens when, like you said, grief forces you to kind of pull your community in, but if you don't have a community or for whatever reason you choose not to do that, is this... I mean, I know this is, you know, has supernatural elements, but is this the kind of thing that could happen? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, because I think it's also hard if you don't also, if you know, you're not going to therapy or talking to someone, right. And you have these irrational thoughts and um, really negative thinking, and you're not able to reframe or alter your perspective, right. You kind of lose this touch of reality of like, okay, what, what's actually real? What's not like, is there a bigger perspective I can be looking at? Um, that I think if he had had support and a sense of community, he probably would have been able to reframe his thoughts yeah. in a different way. And also at the end, I mean, he has the hammer in his hand and we believe that the intention is he's going to smash the laugh box. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? What do you think that signifies? And if he were, if he had been able to smash it, would that have been a good thing? Would that have offered him any of that redemption we talked about? Like, what do you think that would have done for him? Yeah, I mean, maybe it would have felt freeing in a way for him, like he's no longer tethered to this machine. Um, of I imagine like that brings up a lot of guilt for him, probably whenever he's looking at it and using it, even though, again, it is for what seems to be a positive purpose. But I imagine that's almost like his grief and guilt just replaying over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it could have been kind of freeing for him and he wouldn't have felt the need to collect any more laughs or remember the things that, I mean, I'm sure he would remember the things that he had done, but you know, it wouldn't have been as relevant. Um, so that would have been interesting, but it just sounds like his guilt just got to him at the very end. Um, and maybe it even, well, and I, I think obviously it was from Hugh also requesting a new laugh, right? And he just couldn't bear the thought of harming someone again. Mm-hmm. I mean, it almost makes you wonder, I, I feel like whenever you're watching a serial killer show or anything like that, there's a trigger that makes them snap. And mm-hmm. for this, I guess it could be he requesting a new laugh. But I mean, he's presumably, Charlie has been doing this for years and collecting laughs. So what's what's all of a sudden different? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I don't know if it was like Hugh's demeanor, the way he asked or or what their kind of his approach with that yeah. to some degree, because I think all the other people too, um, you know, if we were saying maybe he's a little bit greedy in the beginning, 
um, and wants to be the master. It's like he wasn't really um, giving him that recognition. I mean, he came to him, right? But he also was very controlling and kind of condescending in a way. And so maybe when he wasn't getting reinforcement of like, oh, you're amazing, do whatever you think. Maybe that caused a lot of discomfort and was that breaking point of like, okay, it's not even really worth it at this point. Right. Like kind of forced him to look inward and be like, okay, if I'm not getting the outward respect and I'm tortured by these demons, so to speak. What am I doing it for? Exactly. There's like, I'm getting nothing out of it. So I might as well just smash it and free myself. And in the process, he would also have destroyed his career, but it's become untenable. Yes. Right. And I wondered too, if he just felt so alone in that moment as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he is alone. I mean, I didn't write him a family besides the daughter who passed away. But I mean, from what we can tell, his life is pretty miserable. And all he's clinging on to is the prestige he gets from his job and being the laugh master. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is just funny necessarily isn't the right word to think of this guy who has this renown for making all of America laugh and his life is so miserable and the whole industry behind him producing these laughs is absolutely horrible. I mean, there are a lot of industries like that where the end result is great and people don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but yeah. it's terrible. And I mean, it always makes you wonder, is it is it worth it? Yeah. And it sounds like it was not. In I would system. agree. Yeah, definitely not. I think that's definitely it. not. Not a good way to get your laughs. No, no. Remember that, everyone. There's better <laughs> ways to get laughs. Very true. Well, anything else you want to add, Camille? I don't think so. Again, though, I really love this story and I thought it was really creative. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for guesting. As always, it's been wonderful. And yeah, really appreciate you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Huge thank you to Dr. Camille Holliner. Isn't she great, everybody? She's awesome. Anyway, I hope you stick around for next week as well. We're going to be talking about the engineering of creepy electronics with my husband, Ryan, who is a computer engineer extraordinaire. I really hope to see you there. It's going to be a fun and interesting episode because, as I've mentioned, I find old technology really creepy, and I don't think I'm the only one. So see you next week. Thank you for listening.